Welcome to the Mind Money Spectrum Podcast, where your hosts, Aaron Ogti and Trishal Patel, go beyond traditional finance questions to help you explore how to use your money to achieve the freedom you want in life. In this episode, Trishal and Aaron discuss updates to the Biden tax plan as it makes its way through Congress. Most of the changes target the top 1% of income earners. For example, there's talk of increases to income taxes, capital gains taxes, corporate taxes, and even estate taxes. But will any of this even make a dent in the pockets of billionaires? While Biden is trying to target income inequality, his plan does little to address wealth inequality. So Trishel outlines one radical idea that could change everything. And now, on to our conversation. Hi, my name is Aaron Ogti. I'm a financial advisor in the Bay Area, and I'm here with Trishel Patel, a wealth manager on the East Coast. Hey, Aaron, great to be here today, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Great to be here as well. So back in March, we talked about one of the Biden tax proposals and some of the ideas that they that Democrats and Biden wanted to implement to try to address income inequality. And we now have a, a version that's working its way through Congress with some specifics. And we'll start talking about this. And one of the kind of key things is, I, I guess the theme that came out both went out from our past conversation and from looking through these details was that they actually really are trying to target income inequality. And so we'll, there'll be a few ways that they're trying to do this. We're going to kind of go over some of the details, some of the bigger picture philosophies, at least our takes on it. But Trisha, what was your first take when you started reading some of the details, either a quick key observation or a big theme that you want to make sure that our listeners like are really aware of? Yeah, so I think you did touch on an important aspect of the plan, and that that's the the notion that income inequality is something that's probably top of mind in all of these conversations or all of these you know different snippets that we're getting about the plan. And you know, from that perspective, I probably want to relate two things. We've talked a lot about income inequality over these conversations and we've actually had a couple episodes on you know that specific topic but the high level notion is yeah for basically the past generation the bottom probably 60% of income earners after you adjust for inflation have seen their real incomes go either flat or go down and then you know the, the next 20% above that has maybe seen a marginal increase. But basically, the farther up you go, you've seen a pretty large explosion in incomes relative to what they used to be. So, you know, the top 1% is far earning far more than the, the top 1% a generation ago. And the top 0.1% is earning far, far more. And the top 0.001% is earning far, far, far more than they used to. A generation ago and the and concern about all this is we've seen a big shift in the overall earning potential of these different classes so you know when you look at median averages it looks like maybe the average income earner has been about flat over the last generation from the, then until now but it's highly skewed meaning 
the rich have done uh, or the high income earners have gotten much better at earning income and everybody else or the the majority has gotten worse. So making uh, it look like the median is slightly better. I'm actually like, now that I think about it, you mentioned that, is there anything that would affect median or oh yeah, median household incomes at all? Like, I'm trying to remember if any of the details would actually come into play there. Yeah, so as part of this package that's making its way, now there's only tidbits. There's not a full package. It's not really set in stone. It's more like a menu of things that the Democrats want to get through. And frankly, any and all of them are likely on the chopping block. So, but yeah, pretty much all of the legislation is targeting high income earners, meaning that the medium income earner will not be impacted with higher taxes for the vast majority of these changes. You know, there may be uh, edge cases on the fringe, but um, it's hard to see how that might play out for for the medium income earners. Frankly, we'll, we'll go through some of the bullet points in more detail and we'll kind of see how each of them is mainly targeted high income earners. So, you know, that that's the, the high level thing that, that I wanted to point out that, yeah, it did make clear to me that it was targeting high income earners. However, I, I want to put a big star or caveat next to that saying, well, that you know, income inequality, as we've also discussed over, you know, a handful of episodes is part of the equation. But there's a big part of the equation that represents wealth inequality. So, you know, there's income, what you earn every year, and there's wealth, you know, how much you have overall. And over the last generation, we've seen a similar trend where wealth has started to concentrate more and more at the top end of wealthy individuals meaning those individuals that are that control you know the top 10% of wealth can control more than the bottom 90% you know something like that and that's only getting worse meaning soon it'll be the top 5% control more than the top whatever and and soon it'll be even worse than that and yeah. it, that that exacerbation is may be touched upon in this plan and we'll talk about why th- that may not actually be impacted too much by these proposals. Yeah, so I do a quick scan of my, of my notes and a couple other things. It looks like the the child tax credit, uh, the the expanded child tax credit has been extended. So I think that would probably the only the only thing that would really affect any of those kind of median household incomes. Uh, we're right. again, and it's fully refundable, median, it's bigger. Right. Yeah, uh, I think everything else looks like targeting a incomes 400k and above this is, this is like almost came down to like the campaign prompts like he's so dogmatically sticking to that number now again uh last time we talked about we pulled up the income percentile calculator 400 uh, thousand household income is the top one percent of incomes it's like he really is going after that that top one percent of income but right. again he's not necessarily targeting the top one percent of wealth but right. but let's start going through some of those details. So that that 400k number is going to come up a lot. But some of the details, like the the top tax bracket, uh, is going back up to 39.6 percent. I think this almost feels like it's a uh a, like a politically easy move where they 
they could have gone to 40 or 41 percent like they could have chosen a different number but because they went back to the way it was before it just feels like it's undoing the trump tax cut but it is going back up to 39.6 it's going to apply to households with income for individuals over 400,000 married filing jointly of four 450,000 uh, long-term capital gains rates go up to 25 percent um, uh, on those incomes over same thing 400,000 single 450 married filing jointly and the the two things I think about there are it, it's one like the difference between 400 and 450 like this feels unusual where usually married filing jointly is noticeably more than the single and this actually might be bringing into a pretty big marriage penalty where if you had two people say husband and wife they both earned something like 200 or 250 which is is unusual in itself but that's a realistic possibility the they're paying significantly more in taxes because they are both combining to get over that 450 number and paying up to 500k income than someone who was their consider coworker who's single and is only earning that same 250 now again like that's I don't say only but I'm trying to kind of be cognizant of that but it's it does create this pretty big marriage penalty in terms of income where they could be paying an additional 4% uh, of income taxes compared to someone else who sits right next to them, does the same job. And I I guess I'm not necessarily concerned about the numbers specifically, because again, these are all households in the top 1%. I, I I think that's part of the, what I think of the challenge is like, if I look at some of these and like, oh, that doesn't I feel like there's a better way to do this, it runs the risk of almost sounding obtuse of like, oh, it's only affecting the top one percent anyways, and so it's affecting this top one percent instead of this other top one percent. And so I want to make that like a huge caveat in our conversation is that these are all kind of households that are fortunate enough to be in the top one percent already. And so from that perspective, yes, it is trying to address income inequality. Again, we'll talk about wealth inequality separately. But now we're kind of like compared to the way it was under the uh, current tax law, the way it was prior to the Tax Cut Jobs Act, or we, we have some other basis of comparison. That's why I say like this kind of marriage penalty thing does seem a little unusual. I would have expected the single number if it's at 400 that the married filing jointly number would be a little higher or if married filing jointly is at 450 the single number would have been actually a little bit lower that, that that's one of the things that does feel a little unusual right you know maybe another way to think about this is yeah typically the married filing jointly tax bracket is you know ballpark double whatever the single is in terms of income mm-hmm. so you know, at the 12% range, you can earn up to 40000 if you're single and about 80000 if you're married. 
at the 22% range currently, you can earn about 86,000 if you're single or like 170,000 and change if you're married and so on. And that kind of stays true. There's no real penalty in air quotes um, for being married until you get to these top tier brackets. And then, yeah, there's a big difference. For example, currently in the 35% tax bracket, if you're single, you can pay, you, you can earn up to 523,000. However, if you're married, you can't earn over a million. No, you're you're going to jump to the next bracket the moment you're above 628,000. So th- there is already this notion of a penalty if you're married in these higher tax brackets. So the the new Biden tax plan will, you know, make that penalty even more obvious for households closer to 400,000 and above. And you know, I get, you know, two things go through my mind. One is, well, c- could those married families just do, you know, married but filing filing separately? And then wouldn't that obviate some of these concerns? I, I don't, I don't think so. Um, because well, we haven't seen what the rates would look like for married filing separately. We just, I, I haven't seen anyone that talks about those, those numbers. And, uh, so you know what? Actually, let's. I want to pull up what's the current uh, married filing jointly versus married filing single or separately versus um, uh, married filing separately. Because there's, there's usually is a penalty for the married filing separately. Um, let's see. Where did I, I just had this? So let's take a look at. Uh, so to go from married filing jointly, say uh, the twenty four percent tax brackets one seventy one to three twenty six. The married filing separately, it is ex- I think it's exactly half. Oh, I guess so. Maybe that wasn't the case in the past, but it looks like maybe under the tax con jobs act, they might have fixed that part. Because it does look like okay, so that so that isn't a kind of an update that looks like they're keeping. Well, it does look like the single filer brackets and rates are right in line with the married filing separately brackets and rates. Um, right. I think except at that top tax bracket. Yeah, so everything everything under everything under the bottom everything except the top tax bracket looks like it's about uh the same. Uh but the top tax bracket um so currently thirty seven percent for a single filer, thirty percent percent on five eighteen or more, married filing jointly, thirty seven percent of six twenty two or more, married filing separately, thirty seven percent of three eleven. So currently, the married filing separately is exactly half of married filing jointly, but that's much lower than the single. So currently, if you had a household where, say, uh, both husband and wife were making three hundred thousand each, uh, they would both be. No, so you probably need to be a little bit more than that, I think, because I mean, in so if they're both making five hundred thousand each, I guess, maybe four hundred. Right. So yeah. they'd have 
um, yeah. So here, here, yeah, if they both made five hundred, and they were single, they would not be in the top tax bracket. If they both made five hundred and they do married filing separately, they're both in the top tax bracket by uh, about one hundred ninety thousand dollars. That's an example. If they both made five hundred, then right. there is a huge married penalty, and married filing separately does not solve that. Right. If so, you're above six hundred thousand ish in correct uh, combined yeah. household income, yeah. And so this so, actually um, just kind of so that, that's my so my current guess is that if it's if it's going to be married filing jointly uh, at four fifty at married filing separately, it'll probably be. Uh, two twenty-five each. So that 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 there will be a hundred to yeah, it was something something like that. Hundred seventy-five k each of taxable income in that top tax bracket. Now again, it's like going from it'd be going from thirty-nine, uh, sorry, thirty-five to thirty-nine point six, but on a hundred k. Uh, the tax penalty could be, could I guess it could be as much if there's like a five percent difference. Trying to do the math in my head, and it's uh, about one fifty each, so it's three hundred k income maybe. Um, you can see the marriage penalty being on the scale of fifteen thousand dollars. Now, couldn't you file as a head of household and then have the spouse be married filing separately? Uh, you know, I'm not a CPA. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I, I want to say, I don't know if you can if you're married. If you're if you're actually married, then I don't think you can. And I think if you are not married. You need to have kids, but um, there's also like you lose certain uh, deductions and um, uh, exemptions if you are head of household versus versus single. So like a good CPA will kind of do all these calculations for you, kind of based on you live together, do you have kids, uh, are you actually married or not married. Um, Because there's a lot of other legal protections that marriage provide. Uh, They can kind of help figure this out. Um, Uh, So so head of household, it looks like you have to be unmarried. uh, Yeah, I I believe that's right. But also I I do know even if you had a couple together, they um, uh, are living together, they have kids. I do know that even if they're not married – they can't both claim head of household. Like the, yeah, that's one thing I do sure. know. Like you can't have two head of households, even if they have multiple kids, even if they're from different marriages. Um, if they have the same address and they're living together, they can't claim head of household. They can't right. both. That's true too. So, so you'd get like this one. Like one would claim head of household and also include all of the kids, because the single wouldn't be able to get any benefits from the exemptions way of the kids that the head of household gets. Right. So yeah, this tax law is fun. 
but you okay. know, I, I think the the quick and dirty is the, the marriage penalty if it does stay as we or does get exacerbated as we expect it would only affect the 400,000 and above correct income yes households yep yes uh so yeah it would be it would be um it would be mostly affecting uh income so it'd be incomes that would uh be in the second to top bracket uh, if they're single, but in the top bracket if they're married. So, currently, like, again, it's like if if both husband and wife earn two twenty five or more. Um, I think I think very roughly. If they're single, they'd be in the thirty five percent tax bracket. Uh, so yeah, it would be incomes between two twenty five and four hundred. Right. I think that, that's that's where that penalty exists. So, again, I, I guess that I think that I think that might be my issue with. Um, well, I don't, I don't know how to how, like, truly quantify that because I'll say incomes of two twenty five aren't necessarily top one percent, but again, if they are living together, I guess the marriage. Yeah, if they if they both make over two twenty five, then yeah, they're back. The household income percentile calculator is back in that one percent. So yeah, so the marriage penalty is there. But it does only affect the top one percent. Right. Okay. So, so moving on. What was another detail that you saw that was you want to make sure we kind of talk about today? So uh, another one that might affect you know around this demographic of uh, you know four hundred thousand ish is or even even less is the mega backdoor Roth might be getting the axe. Yeah, so you want to explain that real quick? Both regular backdoor Roth and mega backdoor Roth. Right. So the the backdoor Roth is a strategy that it was a quasi loophole, but eventually um, given the okay by the IRS. And the notion is if you were above certain income limits under certain conditions, you weren't able to make a, a... contribution to your Roth IRA, but there was a way to do it by making a non-deductible traditional IRA contribution and then doing a Roth conversion with that amount into the Roth. We did a whole episode on it. It, There's plenty of details in that episode, but the notion is you could get past those income limits by following this procedure, effectively making the, the Roth contribution possible, even if you're above the income limits. And the strategy was known as the Megabactor Roth. And essentially what would be happening here is this type of strategy would no longer be possible given the extra uh, wordings that might be placed into the legislation that would kind of cut off this, you know, this potential loophole from happening. Yeah, so it looks like uh, if it's passed as is, uh, you could still do it it, this year, 2021, but it'll be gone in 2022. And it looks like it is applying to both the regular backdoor Roth that you have in an IRA at any financial institution, any custodian, and the mega backdoor Roth, which would be done as through employer plans. And it's like, this is one of those things like some plans have been doing this for a while, but just felt like in just the last year or two, a lot more. 401k plans were offering this 
has kind of like consistently enough that I was making sure to look for it for all my clients. Uh, and so like you only, we only got a few years of enough companies introducing it. And now all the HR departments and all the former K plans are to be rewritten and kind of go back and undo that. Right. So, you know, this actually might affect individuals who are not necessarily in the top 1% of income earners. For example, the backdoor Roth strategy was sensible for married, finally, jointly households with incomes above 208,000. And if you're single, above 140,000. So, you know, frankly, this might be one area where your less than one percenters might be affected. Uh, you know what? Actually, now that, now that I think about that, I I think it, this is going to be really confusing. It looks like the prohibition will only be for those high incomes, which would be the single of 400, joint of 450. I think the mega backdoor Roth and backdoor Roth will still exist for income earners below that. I've heard it That's... go both ways. Okay. So um... I think it's up in the air. But I, so yeah, it, it, it could be that the these prohibitions or these legislative changes might only apply to the 1%, but I think it's not necessarily clear. Well, that's that's going to be really interesting for employers to try to figure out. Especially like, okay, uh, you earn uh, 300000 You can do the uh, mega backdoor Roth in the plan. But if your spouse earns 200000 then you can't. Or, like, like I don't know, that's going to be... That's just going to be a huge logistical nightmare um, because there, there's already kind of hard challenges for employer-based plans uh, trying to cal- account for employee spouses who aren't employees. Um, the, the, say, the current guess is um, the any Roth contributions or Roth conversions. So that's technically the back to Roth is it's a, a non-deductible after-tax contribution that you're doing a Roth conversion. The Roth conversions, that amount being converted will add to your taxable income. To kind of, so it, that could push you over the limits, whereas uh, you may not have been there before. So for if your income's over, or sorry, is under the limit, and you are doing this kind of back to a roster, it should be okay because that was coming from your taxable income this year anyways, but you wouldn't necessarily be able to do extra Roth conversions. Um, that's going to, if you can do it up to the limit versus if it's eliminated completely. Uh, but again, I, 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 I'm not quite sure how. So, so if a 401k plan allows you to do the mega backdoor Roth and then either your income goes up later in the year, maybe you get a big bonus, you get a raise, uh, or sell stock that pushes your total income over that number, or the 401k plan doesn't know what your spouse earns, so you end up going over those numbers, 
I don't know if there's a, a plan in place or a law or a, a detail that allows you to do a recharacterization of a Roth conversion. So like if you accidentally do too much backdoor Roth earlier in the year, even though because you were planning on your income wasn't going to be high enough, but then your income does end up higher, I, I don't know how that will be unwound. That'll be kind of one of the things we need to figure out. Yeah, I mean, I think depending on which way this goes, it will open up lots of possibilities for missteps all along the way. So, you know, as we said before, it'll certainly <laughs> keep tax professionals busy and it'll certainly keep advisors busy. But, you know, the, the high level notion is, yeah, the, the mega backdoor Roth allowed an extra 6000 per individual or 12000 per family to get, uh, you know, that much more contributions than they would otherwise. And that might be going away for certain individuals. And the mega backdoor Roth allowed individuals to potentially shelter up to 58000 a year um, in total, Whereas without it, you might be capped around 19500 plus whatever your employer matches. So, you know, that going away might also be pretty impactful for those that are currently able to do that. Yeah, I think the other, the other thing that, that looks like it could come into play is there might be a 10-year window where after 10 years, they may ban Roth conversions completely if your income is over, again, that 400, 450 number. Uh, and here, so like cur currently you can do, um, Roth conversions of after-tax dollars. So it looks like that's what they're trying to eliminate now. But, uh, even if you are over the income, you can do Roth conversions of pre-tax dollars, like, like just a regular Roth conversion. And it looks like they still want to allow that because this is all money that like we high income earners be putting in pre-tax. It is encouraging them to make it taxable now and convert it to a Roth within that window. Um, so that's, there's a ten, currently proposed a 10 year window for that. Uh, so you might still get um, the Roth conversions of pre-tax dollars, but now the math starts to change. Whereas the Roth conversions of after-tax dollars uh, just kind of made so much sense because it was a basically a non-taxable event for the taxpayer is just a logistic and um, kind of accounting form of making a change from after tax to Roth was not a taxable event. It just had to follow the tax laws. So maybe that's, maybe that's what I'm thinking of is, is the conversions of after tax amounts might be eliminated regardless of income if that sounds right, but uh, after 10 years, all Roth conversions will be prohibited for the high income taxpayers. Does that sound right? Yeah, you know, again, a big maybe, you know, or <laughs> potentially, <laughs> but it, perhaps <laughs> that okay. might end up being how it comes, yeah. Well, you know, to also tie this in, though, there, there's other changes to IRAs. And a big one for some people is the notion that there may be caps on the size that these accounts can get to. Something we talked about way back is you could run into situations where an individual ends up with 
millions and potentially tens of millions in these tax shelters. And we mentioned it in the context of the, the Romney IRA, the notion that Mitt Romney, this came out during his presidential run, was able to get over a hundred million or so into his IRA account, which had a lot of people scratching their heads because if you can only put in, you know, like six thousand a year or so, how do you get that much money in there? And it turns out there's ways to do it. You can check out that episode for more. But you know, it also came up more recently with Peter Thiel, uh, another wealthy individual who was also able to get uh, a pretty silly amount into his IRA, you know, following the stuff you're allowed to do. But um, I believe one source cited his Roth IRA with like $5 billion or something like that. Yeah, it's and, something like he, he, he turned a small investment in a private company. I think this was PayPal at the time into $25 million in his Roth IRA, which kind of felt like Mitt Romney, like, oh, this is closer to normal like we've seen other examples and then he reinvested those proceeds in another private company i think it was, i think it's mostly tesla i'm not 100 sure about that uh and like the 25 million then turned into 5 billion right and then you know this had a lot of alarms going off because this money is effectively sheltered meaning uh if it's Roth money, then it will never be taxed. And even if it's IRA money, it will be deferred indefinitely until, you know, likely after he passes away. And the concern here is that if it's not taxed and it keeps growing, that's a pretty large benefit. Again, this was meant to benefit income earners to help them save for retirement, you know, not necessarily (laughs) meant to provide billions of dollars in shelters. So the, the, proposed change would lower the or put a cap on how much you can keep in these types of accounts something uh, around like 10 million for example that's a number i've heard meaning if your account grows to that much you'd be required to take a minimum distribution to bring your account back to that size meaning it can't grow to you know billions of dollars or even tens of billions once it gets above you know let's say 10 million then you got to trim it back yeah i think numbers are if you have over 10 million, it'll be a 50% RMD. You have to take the money out. Uh, it has to take half of what's out. And if it's over 20 million, you have to take it all out. You cannot kind of have a Roth IRA over $20 million. Right. You have to take it all out. That's above the, the that cutoff. Yeah. Uh, right. So I think one kind of, I want to say caveat, but like, if you, I want you, don't want you to feel bad for Peter Thiel here. Um, when, when he takes five or let's see, what is it? Four point, uh, nine, eight million, four point nine, eight, four point nine, eight billion. Did I do that right? Or is I, did I miss? Is it, uh, four point, yeah, four point nine, eight billion, uh, out of his Roth IRA. It's in a Roth IRA. It's not actually a taxable RMD. Like you think of with your traditional 401k, traditional IRA, he has to take the money out. He'll still reinvest it in some other taxable investment account or other private equity, whatever he wants to invest in. So he's not having to pay a five billion dollar income tax bill. He it's still coming out of the Roth as a tax free distribution. He just has to take it out and invest it somewhere outside of the Roth, where you start to get into. 
estate planning. You know what? He'll he'll probably invest in something. It'll get it'll keep growing and get us up from basis, and his kids don't pay taxes on it anyways. <laughs> now that right. I say yeah. that loud. <laughs> so, or you know family foundation you, you get the point yeah yeah <laughs> the five billion dollars still doesn't get taxed because they'll do something else that avoids taxes right you know so the B- biden said when he started this legislative process he kind of put out snippets in the news and you know part of he was what he was saying is he wants you know billionaires to pay their fair share and he's been quoted as saying american America's billionaires pay an average income tax rate of 8.2%. So what he's trying to say is uh, billionaires, when they earn income, they pay a pretty low percent compared to the average income earner. And perhaps, you know, it's through some of these different means that they're able to pull this off. Yeah, I... um... One, I wasn't quite sh- sure where he caught the number. Although, it would not surprise me is taking like the ProPublica um, analysis and kind of applying it to more billionaires, and they had a limited sample size. Um, also, it gets back to that like, well, I, if that's their true income tax rate, like I don't that number feels too low. But if he's applying that number to other like wealth gained something like that, then yes, that, that sounds closer, but yeah, it's, it's, it was one of those things like the campaign promise of going after billionaires, it went after the 1% income earners, but there, there wasn't a lot that really seemed to target the wealth. And one thing, so there's two things. Uh, One was a small Technical detail: Defen- Defective grantor trusts were eliminated. This is a estate planning strategy that kind of allows you to put money into something like these trusts. It's called an intentionally defective grantor trust, and so you're transferring money out of your estate. You still have uh, some control, and you can receive income from these trusts. So you can still use the support lifestyle, but then um, the a stake continues to grow in this trust until you pass away. And then uh, any growth kind of isn't part of your estate. So there's no estate taxes on the growth. Uh, it's also used in paying premiums on life insurance. So you start to get a, an amplification or leverage benefit of, okay, if this asset can pay $100,000 per year of a life insurance premium, that will pay a $10 million death benefit when you pass away which can start to pay either some of the estate taxes or can also be left for heirs. Uh, but this might be going away. The other thing was the reduction in the unified creditor amount. So it was it's up to like 11 million plus kind of, because uh, this is one of those things IRS does a pretty good job of adjusting with inflation sometimes. Uh, they do an okay job sometimes. It was 10 million, came up to a... Uh, up to a little over eleven million dollars now. So a married couple could exclude twenty two, twenty three million from their estate for state tax purposes. That might be coming back down to five or six million. So it's kind of, kind of cut in half. So again, it's a uh, um, if your estate is over 
$22 million then, and they're removing this one defective grantor trust and reducing the estate tax exemption. Um, this could be a pretty big tax for wealthy on estate transfers, uh, but looks like they kept the step up in basis. So that still exists. So there's no, there's not necessarily any extra income tax upon death, but uh, again, kind of targeting this, this is an okay one. Like this, this actually felt like if you're trying to target um, wealth inequality, at the very least, you're kind of doing it on a generational basis. Just be, like, again, Peter Thiel, like we might be able to have some of that wealth taxed upon his death but he's like still wouldn't have to pay the income taxes on the on the gain if he uses the stuff on basis. Was there anything right. else that you saw so, that yeah. does kind of address the wealth inequality side? Well, you know, I'd say the yeah the estate tax lowering that exemption amount from you know married twenty three million down to like eleven million will likely have some impact if you're in that 11 to 23 million range. So yeah, certainly that there's plenty of, you know, wealth in that region, but you know, if you're above that range, it won't make that big of a difference or, you know, it, it'll hardly be noticeable to the billionaires. That's great. That's a great point. There, yeah. It's, it's one of those like marginal differences. So if your combined estate goes from, 1 billion to 1.01 billion and then you're paying uh 50 50% of taxes on that you're so you're you're paying a half a percent more in a in a state tax for a billionaire like right yeah I, and you know that's yeah, assuming like, you're actually paying that tax and not doing yeah, something yeah. else <laughs> yeah <laughs> But yeah, that um, so it'll affect some wealthy individuals, but not likely. You know, the it might affect the top one percent, but not like the top point one percent and above. So, you know, something like that. There, there's also a change in or a potential change in the capital gains tax rates. So now it's capped at twenty percent, and soon the proposal is that it might go to twenty five percent. So that might give it a little bit more bite. Um, I, I think perhaps, but again, it, it may not make so much of a difference to the billionaires, but it, it may make sense to, um, you know, the, the 400,000 plus income earners. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think there's also uh, a, f a few things on the net investment tax, uh, net investment income tax. So this is the 3.8% uh, Obamacare surtax uh, looks like that would also add to the long-term capital gains. So, if they have long-term capital gains and incomes over four hundred slash four fifty, their max rate would be like twenty-eight point six percent federal. And then you have state on top of that. Um, they're also adding the net investment income tax to uh, high-income S corp owners. So. Previously, with an S-Corp, you would be able to separate kind of S-Corp income into employee income or employee salaries, which do have FICA taxes and other employment taxes, 
from owner dividends, which did not have those payroll taxes and previously did not have any of the net investment income tax. So they're adding net investment income tax to S-Corps and that, that, that 3.8%, uh, I think it's over 404.50 with some phase out or phase in ranges. So again, targeting those high incomes they're trying to say, like, wherever this high income comes from, we're trying to increase the taxes on it, whether it's the S-Corp, whether it's uh, coming from capital gains. Like, there's a anything over 400, they're, they're really trying to target to increase the tax rate on, on those higher incomes. Right. So, you know, I think those are the main things that kind of target incomes however you know i think the big thing that's kind of missing is well what's the actual impact to wealth inequality yeah it's it's i i I almost wonder if we can pull up well maybe look at it later but the the pro publica talks about uh what were the actual incomes that they claimed on their income taxes for some of these really wealthy because I know they uh, one of the things they added a three percent surtax on incomes over five million dollars it's like there's like whatever some really really high income number is they're adding another three percent on that so like the true top tax rate is actually 42.6 percent um, for ordinary income but again that's that's a five million dollar mark and um it's again trying to target those really high incomes but again it's like we're talking about this is all income taxes and like you said what is some of the how does this address some of the inequality concerns right so you know what we kind of learned from that episode is there's this notion of a true tax rate where you look at not necessarily the taxes paid on the dollar of income earned but the taxes paid on a dollar of wealth generated. So for example, for the average household, for them to generate an extra $100,000 in wealth in net worth, they would have to pay over, based on these numbers, over $100,000 in taxes. That's quite a bit. And they said, okay, well, how much in taxes do the wealthy have to pay to increase their wealth by $100,000? And it turns out it's far less. So based on some of the numbers, for example, you know, for Warren Buffett, he would pay a hundred bucks. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> so there's a bit of a discrepancy there. So the, we've talked about this notion of income inequality, but the the real big issue here is wealth inequality. The notion that if you're above a certain level of wealth, your wealth can accelerate even higher without having to do anything because wealth can compound a lot more efficiently, especially if it's taxed at almost nothing. Yeah. And, you know, the way to kind of think about this is, you know, there's this notion of like a thermal nuclear reaction and you pass this kind of tipping point 
where you have this kind of like nuclear core that it generates some heat and it gets the reactor going and that reactor generates more heat, which gets it going even faster and it just keeps getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And there's nothing you can do about it. That's a concern, right? If you're not pulling that heat away, that's where these kind of nuclear disasters come into play. Too much heat is generated because it's a runaway reaction. And that's what happens here with wealth. If if there's no way to kind of pull any reins in, it'll just kind of grow on its own without any effort because it can just compound, earning the simple market return by just getting an extra 7% a year or year after year or so on. <laughs> Even if you have you know big drawdowns, it's not really taxed according to our system because until those gains are realized that's when they're taxed but if you're never realizing those gains that's the strategy in play here then you just defer those taxes until after you die and even then some so the the notion is yeah if you look at the tax rate based upon the growth in income or sorry the growth in wealth then focusing on taxing income at a higher percentage is kind of meaningless meaning all the stuff we've been talking about increasing the tax rate from like 20 you know 35% to 39% increasing a deduction here and there and changing it back to a Roth it, it's not going to make any difference here you know something we noted for example is you know back to that what i mentioned with Warren Buffett in um the 2014 to the 2018 period he reported 125 million in taxes but his wealth grew by $24 billion. He paid $23 million in taxes on the 125. So that sounds like a pretty high percent. You know, $23 million on 125 is like an 18% tax rate. Again, still lower than his secretary. He keeps <laughs> saying that. Um, nobody believes him, but that these are the numbers from the IRS. But that's missing the point entirely. It doesn't matter. if he, Even if he paid 100% income tax rate, meaning we just took all the numbers we, we've said in this Bidem tax plan and just made them absurd, you know, $125 million on, uh, on you know, the, the amount of growth in his wealth is still a fraction of a fraction. So at the end of the day... If there's nothing really in place in this plan to tackle, you know, these issues of wealth inequality, which, frankly, we haven't talked about any yet. There's one potential, but um, I'll talk about it in a few minutes. But so far, none of the things we've mentioned will will combat this concern. You know, by, by the way, if I didn't miss a zero, 125 million on 24 billion is about a half a percent. So even if he paid 100% in taxes on his income that he declared, he would still only pay half a percent in income per dollar generated in wealth, whereas yeah. you know the average American will have to pay above a dollar, above 100%. Yeah. So I, I think this almost goes back to like the philosophical conversation. It does feel... Other than the step up in basis, which I guess is kind of the um, income tax on wealth in your lifetime, sort of. Uh, 
it, it does feel like they are trying to address some of the generational wealth and estate taxes going from one generation to the next. And so I, I'm a little curious, like, do, do you feel, would that be a good target? Or is it only be limited because it takes decades to come to fruition? It might not be a bad target, but, you know, frankly, there are ways to kind of get around that, right? With the private foundations and things like that. You just take all your money, you donate it and give your kids lifetime jobs on the foundation and the committee. And they get to use the corporate jets to take all of their, you know, fancy trips and whatnot. So it, I don't know, does it really change much by, by putting in more legislation to target the state tax? Um, hard to say. I, if, you know, I think what we've read, what we've reviewed so far in the Biden's tax plan, not really going to make that big of a difference. However, there, there is one thing, one proposal that's out there. Who knows if it'll make it, you know, past tomorrow. But the notion is you could tax unrealized gains. And instead of letting them grow for decades without ever being taxed, that's potentially one way that you might be able to combat this issue. And, you know, frankly, if we don't want to make it too complicated for everyone, we just have it attached to, like we said, you know, the 400 richest Americans and you could probably yeah. accomplish, you know, 99% of your, your objective. But yeah, the, the notion there is a large part of why wealth can grow indefinitely or exponentially with a low tax rate is because the wealthy get to defer their gains. They don't have to realize it because they don't need that wealth to live. Or they don't need the vast majority of that wealth to live really well. It's just not necessary. So you can just let the bets ride indefinitely. Or you can borrow against that. We've heard, you know, there's many strategies yeah. to not ever realize wealth. So yeah, well, one notion would be that each year you would take your growth in wealth, your unrealized gains, and you would pay a tax on that. If you're super wealthy, you got to figure out how to do it. That, you know, that's kind of how it would work. So I'm trying, like, if if I'm a billionaire, let's say I have a, a few billion dollars, and uh, this is just my personality, like, I own a sports team. So uh, it generates revenue, but it's been appreciating. You know what? Uh, Jerry Jones has owned the Cowboys for a long time. Um, also owns the stadium that they play in. And so a large amount of his wealth is tied up in these two illiquid assets. Now, again, like, like you said before, if there's a will, there's a way uh, we can like, he's, he can figure out the mechanics, but like, what would you suggest as a tax rate on unrealized wealth gains, even with a good, a fair market value like that that's also a slightly separate conversation but that's difficult to determine but if we had a good fair market value what do you think would be a fair rate on unrealized gains 
Right. You know, I, I, I can just guess and speculate here, but, you know, maybe a good rate place to start is, you know, like a, a percentage of whatever the rate is on realized gains, you know, call it 80%. I'm making stuff up. Okay. And yeah, but let's just start the conversation with something like that. Sure. So maybe it's something like, I could actually see like something like, uh, if you don't realize it, there's a half a percent or ha sorry, half of the regular realized gain number. But if you realize the gain, then it's a, the full amount. Yeah. You know, you, so you get I, some I, I like that idea of tying it to, yeah. Yeah. So you're paying something, but it like, like realizing it is not as costly compared to the alternative kind of thing. Right. Um, so I like the idea of like tying that, that unrealized gain number to the realized gain number and creating some incentive to realize more of it uh, sometimes. But so next I'm like, it, if, yeah, cause it's like those mechanics of like, okay, if it's a two, if it's the stadiums with a billion dollars, I think stadiums are like 5 billion and the team's worth another 5 billion. But it's but it's I guess it's gone up each year, so it's not doing all all that once. We'd be kind of we're doing it on the gain of the asset, so it has to go from five billion to six billion, and he would pay two hundred million in unrealized gain taxes, which that might be within the realm of like he probably has the cash flow to figure that out. Yeah, you know, in my mind, if we're talking, you know, the tens of billionaires and above, you know, 10 billion and above, you know, and you're holding assets that cost billions, there's a market for assets that cost billions. You know, there may not be an asset for, you know, or a market for an asset like a farm that costs like 10, 20 million or maybe hard, but you can market things you know, yeah. there are billions of dollars. <laughs> There's people who will buy it. Yeah, you, you, know, can you don't probably, need to like, sell you, it all. You can sell a percentage. You, yeah, you know, that's the, what I'm saying. These you are probably choices. It'll probably be some incentive to kind of sell my, minority ownerships to sell 1% or 2% per year. So that's actually, yeah, if you sold, uh, one, per, if you owe $250 million in unrealized gain taxes, and you took your five billion dollar asset and sold one percent. Uh, you're at fifty million dollars. So, might encourage you to sell a few percent per year in addition to um, just whatever your regular, whatever your uh, investment, like your income generated from that investment is. Right. Yeah. And again, you have ten billion dollars. Pay someone to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, they will figure it out for you. Don't worry. That's kind of these like they're already doing that a lot. To, yeah. To <laughs> you just add more billable hours. Yeah, and you, you'll be okay. Anything else that you can think of as, as you're reading through this? Well, you know, I, I think that's kind of the main point. There's a there's a lot in here um, to combat or to to make some impression that income inequality 
is a thing and it, it, there's some things that can be done about it. But, you know, frankly, I'm, I'm a little skeptical that much will make it to the table to combat wealth inequality. Yeah. It, again, it, it's for most people like, the, again, the child tax credit for median household incomes, that that's nice. But everything else is those those high income earners, not necessarily wealthy. Yeah, you know, there are a few benefits, like you mentioned, and I think it was even debated at one point, should they put in, you know, they, they want to expand public programs like, you know, Medicare to include dental, hearing and vision, they want to provide um, or do something to reduce prescription drug prices. So th- there's certainly things that, that might help, you know, clean mm. energy and other programs like that. Again, the, the skeptic in me says that it's going to be a struggle for some of those policies. You know, for example, to get lower do- drug prices, there's no powerful grassroots group devoted to lowering drug prices. But there is big pharma <laughs> trying to combat yeah. the, you know, the increase. So, you know, it, the concern here, as we all probably know, is this is a very tight legislative agenda because there's barely enough votes, you know, probably down to one or two votes to get this to pass. So you don't got to buy out every politician in the country to make this whole thing fall apart. You only need to where... buy out two or three. <laughs> right. And yeah, big pharma knows that, and so do the politicians. Yeah, and you know the same thing for increasing taxes on the wealthy and corporations. Tax rates are at their lowest levels for the affluent. We we've said that many times, and there are groups representing the interests of the wealthy. You know that, especially former Congress members. <laughs> so yeah. You know, the, the, there's lobbyists out there, and again, some of these are former members of our Congress trying to persuade the Democrats to water down the legislation, especially when it relates to some of these tax increases. And they might have a lot of sway to buy that one vote. So, yeah, it, you know, the, there's some some skeptic, or the skeptic in me here, here says that even the versions that, that we've talked about today. It's going to be a tough battle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of like there's a lot of stuff in here, a lot of like detailed changes that kind of some of my clients will go through, especially for my clients who have like that one-time liquidity event where okay, their incomes are below the 450 um, combined household income except for the one year where they are selling a million dollars in stock. And then it goes back down below. Like, like it, this does create some planning issues there, but big picture, like, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, it's going to keep uh, CPAs and tax attorneys employed for, for a long time. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's something we mentioned the last time. It's hard to say that you can proactively make any major changes based upon what we know now. It's just too many what ifs and contingencies in play. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, if the the mega backdoor Roth goes away and the 
the standard backdoor Roth goes away. That's, you know, something that you probably want to take advantage for the next year or two, but you know, that's kind of it, you know, then yeah. you got to do something else. So I'm, I'm curious to hear from our listeners of like, is there some part of this that they've heard that's going to affect them that they're concerned about is do they, they like the kind of targeting incomes over that 400. Does that feel like it's progress? Does it feel like they're just as, are you just as skeptical as Trishel? It's like, it's a lot of noise. It's not going to actually do anything. So I, I'd love to hear from listeners on some of their takes on the Biden tax plan. Great. Yeah, we, we'd love to hear from you. And thanks, Aaron. I enjoyed the conversation. If you're enjoying these conversations, do spread the word. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. We appreciate you joining us today for this episode of the Mind Money Spectrum podcast. Be sure to visit mindmoneyspectrum.com to access the entire library of episodes. Remember, it's not black and white, but the wide spectrum of gray area where you get to pursue the freedoms you want in life. Opinions voiced in this material are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. All performance referenced is historical and has no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested in directly. Have a nice day.